All right, everybody, welcome to the first episode. Uh, as I've been trying to record this intro, I am super self-conscious and recognize that this might sound super boring and it might not be interesting. The more I hear my voice talk about these things, the less interested I am in posting this, but whatever, I'm just going to post it. And if you don't like it, lie to me. But with all that being said, the first book slash chapter I want to look at is uh, Letters to Malcolm by C.S. Lewis. This is something I just um, reread recently, and uh, it's an awesome, tiny, quick read on prayer. And I think it's one of Lewis's best works, probably most controversial uh, or up there because of some of the things he talks about and, and asserts in, in this little book. Um, but I think that is part of what makes it so valuable. It causes us to think. Now, this is a fictional correspondence between Lewis and this character, Malcolm, uh, where there is no real list of letters that were sent back and forth. But Lewis is just using it as an excuse to talk about some of these ideas. But it is interesting because we only have Lewis's half of the letters. So each chapter starts with Lewis presumably responding to a letter. And it's very much like the letters in the New Testament written by Paul, where Paul is writing to these churches in the New Testament world, Galatia, Philippi, etc. Um, but we don't have their letters. So we often are guessing context to try and derive meaning of what Paul is saying in this specific instance. It's the same thing here in Lewis's book. I think he's mimicking that in some ways, which is valuable, I think. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting situation. If you are choosing to read this or anything by Lewis, there are two complaints I have about Lewis, and I love Lewis. I've read his work many times over. One is that Lewis often doesn't title his chapters, and this is one of the books where he doesn't. So what I have done uh, over the last few years is I give the titles chapters myself. Um, or no, I give the chapters titles. Yeah, that's what I mean. Um, just so I can organize my thoughts, like, okay, which ideas were discussed in which chapter kind of thing. Um, and the other thing that I think Lewis does regularly, and this is especially problematic now, you know, 50 some years after his death is that Lewis, I think writes like the middle of his book, the end of his book. And then he writes the first two chapters because he didn't know how to start some of these. The beginnings of his books are so boring sometimes. And I understand why that's a barrier for a lot of people to read his work but I also think his work is pretty impressive. So if you can get through the beginning, I think most of it gets pretty good. Um, this book is a mini version of that, whereas you kind of have to guess you know what he's talking about in the first few lines of each chapter because he's starting a new thought. And so you're kind of faking it till you make it. Just pretend you know what he's talking about, what he's getting at, and go from there. But yeah, I'm just going to jump in now. That's all my preamble to say. I want to look at the first chapter in this book, which I have titled Liturgy. Um, and yeah, let's just look at this quote about Lewis telling us about what 
church is supposed to be. He says, as long as you notice and you have to count the steps, you're not yet dancing, but only learning to dance. A good shoe is a shoe you don't notice. Good reading becomes possible when you don't need to consciously think about your eyes or light or the print or spelling. The perfect church service would be one where we almost are unaware of it. Our attention would have been on God. But every novelty prevents this. It fixes our attention on the service itself. And thinking about worship is a different thing from worshiping. And when I think about this, you know, I, I grew up in a church that doesn't technically have liturgy. Um, uh, I think every church does utilize liturgy, even if that's not the word they use. But liturgy is basically the order of worship or the rhythm. Like we all know if the churches we go to have, um, do we start with a song? Do we start with welcome and announcements? Do people make jokes during the welcome and announcements? Um, do we do communion in every service or only once a month? Do we call it communion? Um, are there pre-written prayers, a prayer of confession? Is there a call to worship? Is there a time of silent prayer? Is there an altar call? These are all components of worship services that are important uh, in different denominations, different communities. Um, but we definitely know the things that we are accustomed to. And, and growing up, I was totally against the idea of like a pre-written prayer. Um, I thought that made no sense. Why would you need to read someone else's prayer? You should just come up with your own. But uh, the next chapter that I'm sure I'll talk about at some point, it gets to the heart of that conversation uh, pretty well. But liturgy, like the order of worship, it, it sounds maybe like a really boring topic. But when you think about it, think about the things that you value in a church service, like the things that matter most to you. Like when you're, say, like you go to college or you're out of college or you move and you're looking for a new church, usually you'll go in and you'll say, oh, I really liked this part of this service, but I didn't like these four parts, right? Um, especially in modern Christianity and, and the Western church in particular, the thing we put the most emphasis on is preaching, which is probably a, a whole conversation in itself. But, you know, oh, I really enjoyed the entire service, but I really didn't like the preacher. And and sometimes it's not even the content of the preacher's sermon. It's just that they were boring, or not exciting, or, you know, something to that effect, let alone a theological issue. And on the flip side, sometimes you've got someone that's really charismatic and enjoyable to listen to, but you think that they're saying some stuff that just doesn't sound right. Uh, so it's interesting where we put our priority in regards to what we value most in a worship service. Um, and we make different compromises. But what Lewis is getting at here, one is the importance of liturgy because it does give us structure. It teaches our body to do things just like muscle memory. If you play a sport or if you've gotten used to typing really fast and you don't need to look at the keys when you type. Or maybe if you're not really into typing, at least with texting, you get pretty used to where different letters are on on your phone. Um, there's muscle memory and there's muscle memory to worship too. And on the one hand, that might sound like a negative thing because it's like, oh, like you're not conscious of the things you're doing. But on the other hand, you're not getting distracted by the things you're doing, right? Like when we sing a song in, in church, the act of singing the song 
it's almost um, uh, minimalized when we're thinking consciously at every given moment of the harmony changes or the um, the key shift or the repeated chorus. It's much different if you could close your eyes and just sing and you can just follow the rhythm of the music and the people leading. I mean, this is the same if you go to a, a concert, right? Um, th those like uh, spiritual experiences you have, whether it's Christian music or not, the goosebumps that hit you as you just close your eyes and you sing a song you've sung a thousand times and your body knows what to do. So it's almost mindless in some ways, but that doesn't mean the words don't matter. It just means that you, because your body is acting on its own, because you're able to participate in the activity on your own, now your body's doing the work without your mind doing the work and you're able to just be present in the moment in this weird way. As opposed to if you're someone that goes to church regularly and they bust out a new song, they're like, we're gonna get us ready for you know the next few months. We're gonna learn this new song. And it's just awkward and clunky because you're like, wait, oh, I thought we were going to stop on that word or stop on that line, even if you're re reading old hymns. And there's nothing worse than like when you go to see like a band that you love and you're hoping they play your favorite songs. And then it turns out you're like, we're going to play one of our new ones. And that song ends up being an awesome song, hopefully. But in the moment, you're like, yeah, this is cool, but I don't really know what's happening because I don't know the rhythm yet. I don't know the moves and that's a special experience in one sense, but in another sense, um, you don't get to be as present in it. And what Lewis is getting at here, talking about liturgy and, and how it guides us in our worship, isn't because there's something magical about um, reading a prayer of confession during a church service, though there's something significant. It's not because there's something magical about this combination of words to form this sentence. Um, but that idea of, you know, if you're thinking and counting out the steps as you dance, rather than just letting your body dance, you're still learning to dance. If you're constantly thinking about your shoes, they're either a bad pair of shoes or you just haven't broken them in yet. They're not that super comfortable style. And um, when we think about liturgy, it's supposed to provide the atmosphere for us to encounter the divine. And worship, you know, in, in uh, our common language, we typically talk about like a period of worship as like the time when we're singing. Like, oh yeah, like there was a great time of worship last night. But worship is all of these things. Worship is sitting in silence. Worship is solitude. Worship is meditation. Worship is singing. Worship is the preaching of the word. Worship is the receiving of the word. And so what a worship service is supposed to do is provide the space where these rhythms allow us to, to encounter the divine in multiple ways. And when we reduce worship to one of those things, as if music is the most important thing, or preaching is the most important thing, then we're missing something. We're getting distracted by uh, the, the leaders rather than allowing them to point us toward God himself. And I think often, you know, that that is as much of a problem for the leaders being distracting as it is for us allowing them to become distractions. 
So he says a few more things in this chapter, but uh, it's the first chapter of the book, and he kind of dives into this idea of worship being um, liturgically powered. And I think that there's something really impressive about the way that we think about our own liturgical preferences, even if that's, again, not the word that we use. Um, but he also talks about the need for developing and building upon our liturgical traditions, whatever that may be, like not doing every service the same way forever because it's how it's always been done. Uh, and he uses this analogy uh, towards the end of the chapter. He says, no living language can be timeless. You might as well ask for a motionless river. And the importance of that is to recognize that the Holy Spirit is moving in new ways all the time. The Spirit is communicating all the time. And if we just talk about what the Spirit did, past tense, and that's why we're doing it this way now, then we're going to miss out on what God is trying to do in this present moment. New context, new circumstances sometimes require new approaches. Um, and I think that is one of the, the principles we lose. Mm -hmm. And then the final thing, and this is something really important to me, um, that Lewis touches on, and I think uh, he's spot on. He says that liturgy is one of the very few remaining elements of unity in our hideously divided church. And I just think that is so significant, especially in today's climate. And, you know, I, I've realized more and more over the years that everyone thinks that they live in the most divided age, the most contemptuous age, the most difficult time. And and so I don't want to say that that's where we are necessarily, but certainly there's a lot of division. There's over, you know, uh, there's so many thousands of denominations in Protestantism alone, uh, let alone the the divisiveness within Catholicism um, or in the Orthodox church or in other religions too, I'm sure. And liturgy, these rhythms that we cultivate in our community are actually the things that unite us despite all of these differences, doctrinal um, differences, practical differences, uh, liturgy, the, the confessions that we have about this faith, that we continue to remind ourselves of. That's what unites us. The, um, the late Rachel Held Evans uh, talked about how, you know, as she began to deconstruct her faith and go through this process of learning what she really believed and does she really believe in God, said that um, she started going to a more traditional church and a more liturgical church in the um, historic sense of the word. And she talks about how um, they said the creed every week, the Apostles' Creed, which if you're not familiar with, um, it's just a very basic statement of faith and essentially the oldest unified statement of faith the church, capital C, has historically. And she said that the days where she felt like she couldn't say those words authentically and honestly, she was so grateful that she went to a church where they did say it because everyone in the community was able to say those words for her on her behalf. And often we think about our faith as this individualistic, like personal journey, like it's my journey, my faith, I prayed, et cetera, et cetera. But the Christian faith was always meant to be in community. And the majority of scripture is written with that in mind. Not that there's not personal 
um, angles and aspects to what we do, but we're built for community. We see that in Genesis. And so um, Rachel Held Evans talking about that. I just thought that was a powerful testament to what liturgy is. You know, typically people look at, um, you know, Easter and Christmas really cynically, like, oh, that's when people show up to church for the first time ever, you know, in years, and they think that's good enough. Uh, what if we flipped our perspective? Like, wow, Easter is a onboard, an on-ramp, rather, for people to reconnect. Christmas is this place for people to reconnect. Something about that, that's part of the lit- liturgical year, a liturgical calendar. Something built into that rhythm enables people and empowers people that have been so distant from the community to come back. That's something to celebrate. That's something that unifies despite differences. And that is something powerful in our history and in our present right now. So, yeah, liturgy. It, it was something I really didn't enjoy growing up. I didn't like the idea of it. And, and now I can't imagine being in a church where it's not valued. And so uh, I don't know if that's the kind of tradition you're in, but I invite you to explore some of that. And of course, I invite you to read letters to Malcolm by C.S. Lewis. There's some awesome, awesome content in here, some controversial stuff too, that hopefully we can talk about. But That's all I have for today, just under 15 minutes. So uh, hopefully I'll see you for the next one. Thanks.